Welcome to Collis Curls on the Sofa podcast. Welcome back, everybody, and welcome to Nin and I's um, second podcast. Um, those of you that don't already know us, my name is Sandra Lawrence, and I head up Collis Curl Compliance. And I'm here today with my colleague, Nin Ritchie, who is of counsel at Collis Curl LLP. Um, one thing that's been at the top of our list recently and, and that we've been discussing quite a bit is the recent judgment in Jersey, which was in February earlier this year, 2021, in relation to LGL Trustees Limited um, and a recent decision and fine that was imposed upon them. Um, Nin, do you just want to remind me of the facts of the case, please? Yeah, absolutely, Sandra. This um, really interesting case um, in which... The court imposed a fine of over half a million pounds um, on LGL Trustees Limited for two breaches of the money laundering order. Um, and they also awarded £50,000 worth of costs, which actually, when you look at the judgment, it's only a small uh, proportion of the prosecutor's costs. And the issues at play really were were the adherence to Article 11, so policies, procedures and training, to prevent and detect money laundering and application and timing of CDG measures um, by the firm. And this case essentially um, relates to uh, failure by LLG, uh, sorry, LGL, to recognise and respond to the obvious risk that a structure that it had set up and was being administered um, might be used to embezzle funds uh, from the public purse of Angola um, for the benefit of its notoriously corrupt rulers. Um, so obviously the heart of anti-money laundering regulations is the requirement that FSBs must have in place uh, and follow its procedures to ensure they avoid being mixed up in money laundering. And as we know, across the Channel Islands, that requirement has been in place through the proceeds of crime law and the various handbooks that we've had for, for years, hasn't it, Sandra? It has indeed, yes. Yeah, and we are held to very high standards and, and quite rightly so. And what, what was particularly interesting in this case, I think, was that there was no suggestion that the funds provided um, from Angola were of, of suspicious origin. They, they were public funds. Um, and nor was there any suggestion that the investments into which the funds were being placed were, were suspicious either, because that was a high quality sort of portfolio uh, investment, a uh, property portfolio. Um, what the issue primarily came down to was the risk that funds within the structure and how the structure had been set up um, may be skimmed off and being essentially returned uh, or not returned but diverted to um, the presidential family of Angola. Um, and what happened was um, in around 2010, LGL approached the JFSC um, to discuss the new structure that it had been approached to uh, set up. Um, and there was some discussions backwards and forwards with the JFSC and eventually um, Jersey gave its consent uh, for, for that structure to proceed. 
uh, and it was duly set up. Um, now, shortly afterwards, there's an interesting character who um, comes into uh, play, which is a guy called Bastos. Um, and when the compliance team became aware of Bastos through its dealings with HSBC and the concerns of HSBC, it raised um, concerns with the board of directors. That resulted in the directors going out to visit Bastos, who was a Swiss Angolan living in Switzerland. And they then came back and decided to continue on the basis of what was discussed in that in those meetings decided to continue with that relationship. Um, further adverse media um, came apparent and the relationship continued for one reason or another. In around 2013, LGL was approached to establish a further structure and in August um, discussed that with the JFSC and filed an application later in that autumn uh, for that structure to proceed. It was only 10 months after LGL had filed um, the, this further application that the JFSC became involved with this character Bastos's involvement in the whole structure. And in January 2014, the JFSC informed LGL that its board had unanimously decided it wasn't minded to give consent to the proposed new structure. Um, and essentially that, that didn't uh, proceed. Um, in January 2016, the JFSC undertook a supervisory visit to LGL. And I think the rest is history as played out in the judgment. Um, so that is in very short pricey, uh, the, the case. So it, I think probably what's quite interesting for me is starting at the beginning of all this, Sandra. And I know that, you know, one of your sort of real um, expertise is around take on risk assessment, corporate risk and compliance. Um, I think one of the most fundamental paragraphs in um, the judgment um, is, is the paragraph, um, it's paragraph 11 and it said, the fact that LGL not only took on the Angolan business, but maintained it for several years, despite the warning signs, is the basis for the prosecution's conclusion that LGL did not have appropriate and consistent policies in place to prevent money laundering, a conclusion accepted by LGL by its guilty pleas. If their procedures had been appropriate and consistently applied, then this business would either not have been taken on or at least once taken on would have been terminated shortly thereafter as the red flags came to light. I mean, what's your feelings around this, Sandra? Um, 
all we know is the facts of the case and what it says in the judgment. But notably, this is a structure that was given approval by the Jersey regulator in 2010. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly a, a good place to start, Nin, and, and you're right, that's that's a very important part in this. Um, what I find particularly interesting is there are paragraphs and, and statements within the judgment whereby it is made very clear that irrespective of the fact that the JFSC had given consent for these structures, it doesn't remove the obligation on the provider or the financial services business to carry out their own AML procedures. Um, and of course, one of the one of the, the sort of articles within the money laundering order does relate to risk assessment and management. Now, I think it's particularly notable that the JFSC had, as part of their deliberations back on in, in, in September 2010, um, that they had noted a connection between the stated UBO of Quantum Global and the son of the Angolan president. However, at this stage, the Commission specified that they didn't know how reliable this information was, but put it back on the firm to investigate further. Um, now, I find that interesting, and I wonder if a better approach maybe would have been for the JFSC to ask the business to, to go away, investigate the facts of that, and then revert before giving permission, because there's always going to be a risk that, that that's not followed up or, or it's perhaps not followed up as diligently if you haven't got someone else checking up on your work. Um, so I think for, for me, that that's sort of the first crucial point. Um, and it's a wider point when we talk about take on more generally. If you take on a piece of business and you apply enhanced due diligence or enhanced measures, whatever may be appropriate, make sure that you follow up on those. Make sure that you, you keep a note and that you you take these you, you finalize these points you take them to a conclusion where necessary so so for me i think that's the first key point that really stands out to me it was almost irrelevant really that the jfsc had given consent because all of the risk management and mitigation was still on on lgl trustees and i don't think reliance can be <laughs> any reliance can be placed on a regulator giving consent I completely agree with you there, Sandra, although, you know, there is an element that firms will naturally take comfort from the fact that it has obtained consent and other firms working with that firm will also um, be taking comfort um, from that fact. Um, yeah, absolutely. One of the um, sort of real issues for the prosecution was the volume of fees and that was being generated from this structure. Um, and it was um, in the prosecutors, um, in the prosecution's words, colossal. So, so the fees are set out in the judgment. It said there were non-refundable uh, advisory fees of 50,000, an advance payment of 16.5 million um, to secure fees and expenses for all advisors being paid and a one-off success fee of 2% of the value of the transaction upon the successful placement of the investment. Uh, there was then a 2% equity stake in the partnership. Um, and further, an annual management fee of 2.5% 
of the value assets under management dropping to 2% after two years. Now, on the basis of uh, there being um, $1.6 billion under management, um, even if the performance was zero, the general partner would have been entitled to 40 million US dollars per year, um, falling to 3.2 million after two years of the management fees. And that was a real concern, I think, for, um, for the prosecutors and the court. I think the balance there is, and the real concern there was the commerciality of the fees and whether it was reasonable for those fees to be taken um, against, I think, what um, LGL had probably quite carelessly um, referred to as um, leakage at a high level um, that would not disadvantage limited partnership structure. And I think it was that leakage point that was always the real concern. It was that leakage inverted commas was the element that may have been skimmed off uh, to go back to the Angolan ruling family. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's there's two points that I would pick up on on there from my perspective. So again, going back to onboarding, well, where was the, I don't know, what what could we call it, intelligent thought? Who who had thought through the level of those fees and, and undertaken a, a reasonableness assessment against them? So how how does this look in the whole scheme of things? And, and is this is this acceptable? Is this in line with market rates? Um and there 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 is also reference in the judgment to some of the fees were spent on um or, or rather were passed on to the property managers who were managed at this managing this portfolio of properties but actually when you look at it, it it wasn't that much the vast majority of it was being kept um so i think that's that for me is a very interesting um part of this and i think if i was to look at it from a guernsey perspective um and thinking about the source of the source of wealth thematic there is a very clear instruction from the gfsc there in respect of doing your reasonableness assessment there's your, your sort of three-step test um so so that would be my first observation and, and secondly I, I absolutely agree with you i think the the almost naive use of the word leakage um shows a real disrespect actually to the the sort of the global issue of corruption um, mm. You know, the, this this often impacts some of the most vulnerable people on the planet. And so to use a word like leakage as if it doesn't matter is is really quite disrespectful, actually. Um, if you were to look at, at the time um, on Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index, Angola was ranked 142 out of 180 countries as the most corrupt country. So, yeah, for, for me as a as a practitioner, I find it quite insulting that it was down almost downplayed as an irrelevant part and, and just just, you know, that's how business is done. And, and I think that is picked up on, actually, and I think the um, the courts took a dim view of that. I absolutely agree. And um, the judgment is absolutely clear that the real concern here was the corruptness of um, the, the individuals uh, in the underlying country um, mm. in Angola. And that comes out, actually, it, 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 it is a bit of a jump um, in terms of <laughs> where we're going with this, but that comes out in terms of the CDD issue that was collected. 
And one of the criticisms is that CDD wasn't collected on. Now I'm sort of scrabbling through the judgment here and I'm pretty sure it wasn't collected on the directors of the Angolan bank who were lending into the structure. Yes, um, that, that's right. And I think it was, um, I think in the judgments, it almost says that in terms of materiality, that was immaterial. However, you're, you're quite right. It was, it was noted that, that due diligence, again, it, it hadn't been followed up on. And the reason um, they were so, the, the, um, the, the court was so concerned about that, it was given the size of the fees the National Bank had agreed to pay the, the general partner, um, it was important to know who the directors at the National Bank had agreed that, to see if that, in, their, in, in the prosecutor's investigations or, or, or the investigations of the Financial Crime Unit, um, could shed any light on the arrangement. So that's a real practicality, and we know that um, f from when we give you know, from when we make our disclosures in Guernsey, having that key data and being able to give that across to the enforcement authorities is critical in terms of them then being able to do their job and investigate what has gone on. Yeah. Uh, and it's obtaining that contemporaneously and as much uh, information as possible to record who is involved and why and when. And at the time, when things are going well, it might not seem so important. But when things start to go wrong, it appears to be critical. Yes, it's exactly that. And I think for me, there's almost a sense of, um, and there's an argument to say a, a wider sense of this outside of this case, that there is a risk that as industry, we're, you know, we're, we're neatly tucked away in the Channel Islands and we're, we're perceive we well, we perceive ourselves as being safe from away from all of the corruption that's going on in the world and there is a risk that this just becomes a tick box exercise rather than as you say the ongoing commitment to making sure you're aware of, of all parties um, and and yeah I, I think it's a real problem I almost um this, this is my own personal view I almost um sorry that we we've sort of lost the phrase know your customer over time because it perhaps was a more all-rounded phrase that was more meaningful in terms of knowing your customer rather than a copy of their passport and utility bill you know shoved away in a file and not really considered again until it expires so yeah it, it's the all-rounded know your client and and following up if, if you take take a piece of business on knowing that a, a, an item is out of date or or hasn't been provided yet that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you better be sure that you follow up on it and make sure that you get it in good time. Another thing that becomes apparent um, as this sorry case proceeds is um, the attempts by the compliance team to draw attention to uh, the issues that, that almost unravel before them. Uh, um, and not long after they take the structure on. Um, there's an interesting bit, and I'm just trying to find it. So LGL was struggling to find um, a Jersey bank account uh, for the structure. 
And in August 2011, LGL's compliance office had recommended terminating the relationship as continuing with it would only increase LGL's profile, which wouldn't be beneficial. Um, and in her written statement, presumably for uh, the purposes of, of the court, um, in determining this case, the compliance officer said it seemed that nothing would dissuade the directors from accepting and maintaining this business, despite the negative publicity. I, I yeah, anybody who has heard me speak or, or read any of my articles will know this. This is a huge bugbear of mine, and we see it consistently in in whether it's a, a, a Channel Islands case such as this or right up to Goldman Sachs or, or Deutsche Bank over recent years, there is a the consistent theme of a poor compliance culture and a poor tone from the top where compliance are consistently undermined or ignored. Um, and, and that's absolutely shown in, in black and white here on, on, on this judgment. Um, and it's just so disappointing to read in this day and age that this is still happening. Um, they, they made it very, very clear um, and it's almost unfortunate that another bank agreed to, to provide the banking because it, it almost undermined them once again that, well, here we go, here's another local financial services institution who's willing to take on this relationship. So mm, it's a real bugbear of mine. I do know that. I know that gets <laughs> you. Uh... So the JFSC obviously went in, um, undertook its supervisory visit. And at some point, this came to the attention of the prosecutors and resulted in, um, in a pretty large fine for LGL. Um, what's interesting in the decision of the court and it's just sort of taking it back to your point and this desire not to lose the business. It said over the period, LGL earned just over um, 900,000 in fees and a profit of some uh, 320,000. Um, the fine itself on LGL for taking on this business was 550,000 plus cost penalties. Yeah, it's um, when you look at it from that perspective and, and actually taking it a bit further, if you look at some um, other factors that were used in determining the level of the fee, um, in fact, the entire profit for 2020 for LGL was only £750,000. So, so clearly this, um, this relationship was a significant portion of, of, of their revenues. However, yeah, the, the sort of 550 total fine was in you know roughly two-thirds of their entire profit for 2020 so one does ask the question was it really worth it sure um it was a big risk to take and maybe uh, not the most sensible choice with um shovels full of hindsight quite so what would you say are your top takeaways, Sandra, from this case? It, it's, you know, it's such an interesting case. Um, and obviously, sort of the regulator, or essentially the, the prosecutor in Jersey, it, 
you know, really got its teeth into it. Um, it, it, it is it with, with our sort of objectivity looking back? Do you think this is an example um, of a financial services business is getting it so wrong that, that the prosecutor had no um, alternative but to take this action? Or do you think it's um, the fact that Moneyval is coming uh, imminently that, that Jersey decided to, um, to head in this direction and go for it with possibly a case that it knew it had pretty good chances of succeeding on? I think um, the, the cynic in me would have to say that it's um, it is in re relation to the imminent money val inspection, and we know that currently Jersey are scheduled to be visited the quarter before Guernsey are. Um, so I, I I do think that had an influence, um, but I do think as well it's very clear coming through certainly coming through the JFSC that they are getting a little bit fed up of saying the same thing time after time after time. Um, we see it in their thematics in their examination reports. Um, that's a very clear message coming, coming out of Jersey. So I think, as you just said, Nin, there was probably a good chance that this would result in a, in a penalty. So I wonder, and this is only my view, I wonder if it was a case of pick your battles. Um, we really need to be able to show the rest of the industry that we will use our powers if we need to do so. So I, I think in answer to your question, I think it was possibly a blend of both, a blend of being able to show Moneyball an example of using the court's powers, but also send a very clear message to industry that controls that should have been in place for, for really quite some time now are still not being applied to the standard that the regulator would expect. So take home points for you, Sandra, top take home points of this case. If you were to learn anything <laughs> and many things from it. Well, I think um, at the risk of, of sounding like a broken record, it's it's do your due diligence, but but do your KYC, know your customer, know exactly who you're getting into bed with, um, and don't just take information on the face of it. Really think about it, put some intelligent thought into it, and undertake a reasonable assessment of those facts. Um, and then secondly, it's your it's your ongoing due diligence. Due diligence doesn't just end after you've taken on the business. It's an ongoing um, factor throughout the duration of a business relationship. So if you've said you'll follow up on something, follow up on something. If new information comes to light, do something about that and show your workings. Demonstrate that you have thought something through. If you still think it's OK and and you know, risk isn't a bad thing. We're, we're all here to, to run businesses and, and to make profits and that's okay. And if you're willing to take on the risk of, of relationships of this nature, okay, fine, but, but you better make sure you've, you've written down why and, and how you've got yourself comfortable with it. I think that's spot on. And my key take home point, I think, is that um, the generation of fees pay, plays no business in the risk assessment of the client. And that is really apparent here. Um, this was a, a big structure um, and there was a, I imagine for LGL, this was one of their larger structures that they were administering. Um, however, our um, money laundering framework in Guernsey makes it absolutely clear that um, the volume of fees generated from a client has no business um, making an appearance 
in the risk assessment of that client. And that is absolutely right. The risks should be assessed on an ongoing basis, as you say, as at take on as the client uh, relationships develops. And it the fees generated from the client should be something that is considered commercially and completely independently.